0: Tina and Rich Linkoff, you know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG
1: It is the final episode of September. Welcome to Legal Face Up. The Legal Eagles are here. We are back on Zoom. Rich like Tina Martini. My name is Sam Panianovich, and thanks to Ben and Gabby and Emily for all of your work. I can't believe Tina. I know we're at September 17, but I just I mean it's almost October. It's almost Halloween.
2: It is. I know. It's crazy. And we know what Halloween is for Rich, don't we? It's like Christmas, actually.
3: <laughs> it's the most wonderful time. <laughs>
2: I'm surprised he hasn't already started dressing up for Halloween.
3: Well, this, He's morning, the best. I, this morning I tested out. I bought one of those, like, dancing tube guys. I have one already right, that's eight feet tall, and I bought, like, a 20-foot tall one. So I tested it this morning, but I discovered the... Blowing mechanism was not strong enough, so i got to get another blowing mechanism. Can I say blowing mechanism this many times on WGN? Maybe.
1: You just said it three times. You are the best, though, at Holloway, so we'll look forward to your costume. Uh, Per usual, lots to get to on the show. We'll talk about the Breonna Taylor settlement just in a second, uh, evictions on state-issued moratoriums, and also the Cranes Notable Women in Law, plus the grab bag at the end of the show. Our first guest today, from the University of Louisville, professor of law, he is Samuel Marcusen to talk about Brianna Taylor and the settlement. Professor, welcome to Legal Faceoff.
4: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
3: Professor, you are in Louisville, where, by the way, Louisville or Louisville? That's always the age of Louisville. It
4: is Louisville. If you want Louisville. not to get to get really nasty looks.
3: Yes, Louisville. So in Louisville, uh, just a couple of days ago, the mayor uh, Greg Fisher announced a twelve million dollar settlement with the family of Brianna Taylor. Uh, Of course, a black woman who was fatally shot by police in her apartment six months ago. In addition to being the largest settlement ever paid by the Louisville Police Department, it includes uh, some changes in the approval process for search warrants, hiring social workers to accompany police, a commitment to um, drug and alcohol testing of police officers involved in any shooting. Despite all that, the mayor said this was not an admission of liability. They did not acknowledge any wrongdoing. My question is, how can those two things mesh? How can we pay the largest amount ever uh, for this type of shooting and also not admit any wrongdoing? Are those two things opposite in your mind?
4: Yeah, I think you have to separate out reality from legal boilerplate. Any defendant that reaches a settlement like this, whether it's a public uh, municipality or a private defendant, they always say we're not admitting liability. Uh, And the reality is that when you pay $12 million and when you agree, I think more importantly, to a set of widespread reforms of police practices, I think everyone gets the message that the mayor and the county attorney were acknowledging that a lot of things went wrong that night in Breonna Taylor's home.
2: Professor, the civil settlement comes as a Jefferson County grand jury is getting ready to hear the criminal case, prosecuted by Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron. What direction do you think the grand jury is going to go in?
4: Well, that's such an unpredictable question, but I think it's uh, quite likely that there will be some indictment for something against at least some of the officers. Whether that will include homicide charges, I have my doubts. But I think you can expect something along the lines of wanton endangerment, perhaps something about how the warrant itself was obtained, Uh, if there is evidence that convinces the grand jury that there was perjury or false statements in the affidavit of Officer Joyce. So I think those sorts of possible charges we could anticipate, uh, I'm not sure that we should expect at this point uh, homicide charges as the family of Brianna Taylor has indicated they're looking for.
3: Yeah. So let's dive into that. Why do you think that? Because this is one of the three or four most prominent cases that is mentioned um, you know, on these issues. So there's certainly a lot of national attention to it. Uh, and also, given the fact that we've seen murder charges in other police shootings lately, and again, charges that have been brought in record times faster than ever, um, this grand jury uh, or these charges haven't been brought forward yet, and it's taking much longer than in other similar cases. So why do you think it's taken so long? Why do you think it won't be homicide charges? Um, what's different about Louisville than all these other cities like Minneapolis and some other cities that we've seen?
4: Sure. As for the why it's taking so long, I, uh, you know, I think that that is a function perhaps of uh, the, inefi- the uh, inexperience of the attorney general, in handling these sorts of situations, these sorts of cases, uh, the attorney general's office having been appointed as a special prosecutor to handle this uh, this whole investigation. Uh, he has never practiced in the area of criminal law. He has no experience dealing with high profile cases like this. So I think we may be seeing the results of some of that inexperience in the delay. As far as why there won't be homicide charges, or at least I would not anticipate ho- homicide charges, I just suspect that the attorney general's office will look at this and believe that trying to convince a jury unanimously, beyond a reasonable doubt, to reject the officer's self-defense claims, which we know they will raise, is uh, it's an unli- it's a unlikely scenario. It's a, a very high cl- uh, obstacle or a hill to climb. And, uh, and any responsible prosecutor has to take into account the possibility and the likelihood of getting a conviction. And given all of that, I think that that is where they are likely to go. It also wouldn't surprise me, I should say, if the prosecutors of the attorney general's office doesn't just present this to the grand jury without a recommendation and say, here's what we've discovered. Here's what the investigation has revealed. You make your call without one way or the other, with us pointing you in the direction of a particular charge. And if that happens, uh, then all bets are off. It's uh, hard to say what the grand jury would do.
2: Professor, last question on legal face-off. What effect has this case had on local race relations? And what does the relationship look like now between the community and the police?
4: Well, it's uh, nothing good in the short and medium term. There is always the hope for long-term reconciliation, that bringing these issues to the fore will lead people to have to have dialogue, that the reforms will improve the relationships between the community and parts of the community and the police. But for now, it has simply revealed greater tensions. It has shown that people react to even peaceful protest with anger and violence. And it has shown that the police have a pretty awesome disregard for the concerns about their behavior. We've even seen the police, uh, the fraternal order of police criticizing the settlement in the day or two since it's been announced. So I don't think anything good has come for now in terms of really starting to a process of healing, a process of reform, a process of making the community closer knit. Uh, but I hope that as time passes, that what we have seen happen, both in the shooting and since, may lead to, uh, to better changes and, a, and a, a better community.
1: Samuel Markison, professor of law, University of Louisville. Thank you, sir, for your time.
4: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka renegades a live show in las vegas starring terrell owens jose canseco and jim mcmahon in addition to co-hosting legal face since 2013 Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit bdlfirm.com. That's bdlfirm.com.
1: You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and after you listen to Legal Faceoff, please rate and review after you listen to the show. Joining us now on the phone, or on Zoom rather, from Minchella Associates, she is Erica Minchella to discuss the state-issued moratorium on evictions. Hi, Erica, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thank you very much. So Erica, since the onset of COVID, Illinois, like many other states, has had an eviction moratorium in place. And just yesterday, Governor Pritzker extended the moratorium in Illinois so that it's now set to expire on October 22nd. Can you please explain for our listeners what is prohibited under the moratorium and what, re- and what renter's obligations um, still remain, um, even notwithstanding the moratorium? Sure, so the
5: moratorium is uh, to prevent evictions of tenants who are unable to pay their rent and could be uh, rendered homeless uh, because of an eviction. It doesn't mean that the rent isn't due, that the rent can't be collected at some point. Um, And it doesn't stop evictions for people who are creating uh, problems within the building that, that are safety or health issues, or for people who are committing crimes within the property. Those people can still be evicted, although It's a little bit harder to get those done uh, because there have to be affidavits added to the eviction proceeding to explain to the court uh, and to the sheriff that they can proceed with those. But for the most part, it's uh, the eviction moratorium is for people who simply can't afford to pay their mortgages, their
3: uh, rent. Erica, what other uh, resources are available to tenants who are having difficulty paying their rent because of the economy and because of COVID? And are there any other measures being um, contemplated to assist them?
5: Well, I heard that when Governor Pritzker extended the moratorium uh, to October 22nd, he also indicated that there was going to be an effort to find some more state resources. Uh, for the last moratorium, tenants had the opportunity to apply up until uh, um, August 28th um, for IDA funds. Uh, that was $5, 000, a $5,000 grant to the landlord, paid directly to the landlord so that the tenant couldn't use it for other purposes other than uh, for rent. Uh, Unless Congress acts and uh, provides another stimulus payment or extends the, uh, enhances um, unemployment, I haven't heard of anything else that's in the works
2: that will help tenants make sure that their payments can be made. So, Erica, landlords seem to be just as vulnerable here, um, especially if tenants aren't paying their rent, um, if they've got bills and mortgages to pay, just like everybody else. Who's looking after the landlord's interests in all of this? And given that you have experience representing both landlords and tenants, what do you suggest landlords do in this situation? Okay. To answer the first
5: question, uh, first of all, the only thing that is really being done to help landlords is that if it's a federally backed loan, a Fannie, Freddie, VA, or uh, FHA loan, there are uh, forbearance and uh, modification opportunities. And any landlord uh, who is falling behind in their mortgage payments really should reach out to their lenders and see if they can get help from their lenders. Um, For private loans that are not federally backed, it's going to be strictly on the basis of what the lender is going to agree to. The best solution that I can suggest in these times right now is that landlords and tenants talk to each other, communicate about what the situation is, whether the tenant has any ability to make the payments. Um, And some tenants are taking advantage of this and just not making any payments at all. And it should be clear that that obligation doesn't go away. There is nothing in this moratorium that has stopped the obligation for tenants to pay rent and landlords landlords can go after them later on. But right now, there's simply no things that I'm hearing other than the opportunity to ask for a forbearance or a, a modification um, that is being provided to landlords. And also, it's not just mortgages, it's city services, it's utilities. The county has allowed for real estate taxes to be paid late without the um, severe interest penalty that's allowed. So you can pay it, I believe, until October uh, late without the penalty. But, you know, that's that's a drop in the bucket. A majority of landlords are single owners. They're not institutional owners. And uh, they're supporting themselves, their families, and very often the handyman um, and maintenance people who work for them. Um, with the funds that they get for for, uh, uh, rent. It's more than just the homeless problem. There's a broader problem that's going on here.
3: Yeah, Erica, according to the National Apartment Association, only nine cents of every dollar paid in rent goes back to the landlord as profit. So the margins are really slim. I think some people who are advocates of these um, rule changes or, or legislation think that there's these big you know, rich, wealthy landowners who are renting out, maybe even slumlords who are renting out properties. As as you point out, you know, a lot of apartments uh, are just rented by regular people, maybe a second income or maybe their primary income. So it's just really kicking the can down the road to say that you don't have to pay rent for a certain period of time.
5: Yeah, uh, my colleagues and I are looking at there being a lot of foreclosures next year, a lot of short sales next year. All of this is going to be a fallout for you know that we'll see next year. Right now, everything is pretty much on hold, but it it, it can't be sustained.
1: That's Erica Mancella from Mancella and Associates. Thank you so much, Erica, for breaking it down. We appreciate your time.
2: Thank you for inviting me. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: It is our final guest segment of the Legal Face-Off show here on WJN Radio, and it's the Crane's Notable Women in Law. Our first prominent guest is actually the host of the show. She is Tina Martini. Hi, Tina. Welcome back.
2: Hello. How's everyone doing?
1: We also have Jennifer Kennedy, who's a partner at Lock Lord LLP. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Lindsay Page Marcus, principal at and Texan. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, and Rachel Cowan, who's a partner in McDermott, Will & Emery, here in Chicago. All of you, welcome to the show. Rachel, how are you?
6: Good. Thank you for having
1: me. All right, Rich, take
3: it away. Oh, welcome. And the heartiest of congratulations to you all for very notable achievements um, being in the uh, notable women in law as put together by Cranes, the 2020 list. So uh, big congratulations to, of course, Tina. Uh, who is well-deserving of this honor, as well as all of you. So, congratulations. Thank you. Absolutely. Rachel, you just got to uh, unmute yourself if you don't mind. There you go. Um, so, obviously, uh, we were going to have all 124 winners, but that would have been a very challenging Zoom, so we think we have a great representation of the list in front of us. So, uh, we'll, we'll just go around the, uh, the panel here and ask you some questions about what this means to you, and also, You know, this is obviously a really challenging time, not just for, you know, female lawyers, but all of us uh, in the era of COVID. We're all, you know, working through that, some very successfully, and some are still having challenges. But I was interested, maybe, Lindsay, starting with you, what your perspective is, um, particularly the challenges as a female lawyer during the COVID period. You know, and talk to us maybe about you or maybe some colleagues who are... you know, challenged by some of the issues unique to females, including a lot of attorneys who are, you know, working from home, but also helping with their kids. Maybe they're raising their kid. Maybe they're helping um, with e-learning. My son is right down the hall and, uh, you know, he's engaged in it now. So that's something that I think is still much more represented by female lawyers than their male counterparts. Can you speak to some of the challenges?
7: Sure. So I'm actually a new mother myself. I had a little boy on my own last summer. Um, and in my practice and um, with my team, I didn't take a formal maternity leave. So I've teased that in some ways, the silver lining for COVID with me has been a belated maternity leave. So although my practice and trust in estates has never been busier, Um, it's been a welcome surprise and a delight to be able to spend so much more time with my son on a regular basis, even in between Zoom meetings. But I think you hit the nail on the head that everyone, regardless of the age of their children, um, or even those that don't have children at home, might be caring for a loved one who's elderly in some way. I think the current environment is presenting unique challenges to all of us in terms of time, and being there and being present. Um, And I think, unfortunately, in many instances, uh, especially for single mothers, but even for those who are married and have a spouse or partner to support them, both of those spouses are faced with extraordinary demands with the Zoom e-learning environment. So my team has been figuring it out as they go. And as a firm, Chuhak and Texan, we've been trying to be as supportive as we can um, and flexible in terms of accommodating different hours, things like that. And I try and schedule things with those working parents with children at home whenever is most convenient for them.
3: Jennifer, um, just yesterday, an attorney compensation study by the legal recruiting firm, Major Hagen at Africa, revealed that male equity partners uh, in major law firms saw an increase of 42% in their overall compensation over the last decade as compared, and I was really shocked by this number uh, given where we are, uh, 22% of female counterparts. Talk to us about the continuing challenges to achieve pay equity for women in the legal field.
8: I think it's an ongoing challenge. I think I mean, a lot of compensation formulas are pretty objective, but the issue really isn't the objective formula. It's sort of the structural issues that are in place that prevent women from succeeding and developing the business they need to be compensated at the same level as men. Like you said, most of the women are staying home. We have female partners here who are virtual learning with their kids and having to work you know, eight to noon, and then, you know, nine to one in the morning. And then yet they're supposed to be out developing business as well. And I think that is the bigger challenge, not so much the formula itself, because business is business and numbers are numbers. And I think we need to do a better job, particularly now with the challenges that you've raised, Rich, about what COVID has done to our women. I lose sleep at night Worrying about losing our women, and we have done in leadership at my firm. We've taken mental health surveys. We've we've created affinity groups for our working moms, because they may decide it's not it's not worth it. It's too much pressure on them. Uh, for for our firm, compensation wise, we slice and dice our data at the end of our compensation uh, season to make sure that everything is equitable for our women for all of our different affinity groups. Uh, But I do think law firms have come a long way. They're making more women partners, but I do think we have a long way
6: to go.
3: Rachel, on that issue, um, you know, we're also, the the other challenging piece during COVID to attorneys is the massive layoffs we're seeing, right? Especially the bigger firms. There was news this week of some additional layoffs, um, many of which were attorneys. So, you know, the the inequality in pay among genders coupled with layoffs, this is a very difficult time to be a female lawyer in many respects.
6: Yeah. So I would actually say that the layoffs, I think, have been less of a challenge because I think a lot of law firms learned their lesson from the 08 downturn that where you don't want the layoffs are at the young talent level who are up and coming. And so I think the issues that affect business development probably affect partner security at the highest level where we're already probably underrepresented but for young lawyers i think the um you know 50 percent of law school graduates are women and at the associate ranks they remain very well represented and i do think that we are making every effort not to lay young lawyers off and that we're expecting that when the business resumes when we resume a normal society those are the young, talented people that we want to continue to have. So there, I I do think it's um, a little bit less impactful on young women uh, right now. You
3: know, Rachel just talked about young attorneys, and that's a great segue to something I know is very important to you as a leader in the, not just Chicago, but, you know, really in, in the entire universe of female lawyers, which is leadership, bringing young attorneys up, and especially, you know, mentoring and helping young female lawyers achieve the status that you all have um, achieved. So what are your thoughts on that? And what do you think other female attorneys and also just you know all attorneys can do to bring up the next generation of female leaders in our community?
6: Well, uh, I think, mean, go ahead, Rachel. Sorry, right, I wasn't sure if you were asking me. Go ahead, Tina, you go ahead. Well, uh, thanks, Rachel. Um, I mean,
2: I, I think that there are a number of things that we need to be very mindful of right now. Um, and that is understanding that more than ever, it's really tough in the legal profession, and every profession, to really make it work. I think COVID has helped shed the light on what a lot of the issues have been and have exacerbated those issues. Um, it's something that McDermott's very committed to, and we actually had a group meeting yesterday to discuss the importance of making sure that when it comes to mentoring and training and just being good role models for people, that especially as we continue to work remotely, that we go out of our way to make sure that our young talent, especially women, but obviously men too, that they know that we're here for them and that we adapt the way in which we work in order to make sure that we train people on you know, not just a weekly basis, that we're not just there for reviews, but we're there for them every day, both in terms of learning the substance, but also learning how to manage clients as well as helping them and guiding them to help them manage their lives, especially at inflection points, um, to be able to continue to succeed and to adapt themselves professionally and personally so that they're in this for the long haul.
3: Lindsay, another fairly prominent, almost as prominent as you all, uh, female Chicago lawyer, but 25 years ago said that, uh, Women's rights are human rights. That that attorney was someone named Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, we're all obviously in the era now of a very intense fight for social justice. Um, why are women's rights in the legal field now more important than ever? And what do you think can be done in addition to fighting for pay equity to level the playing field, um, while everyone's attention is on these issues?
7: I think it's a fabulous question and I wish I had all the answers. Um, So if any of the viewers or listeners do, I I certainly am open to any insights. Um, I think it's an overarching challenge for all affinity groups in terms of each of our respective firms wanting to do anything and everything to have um, a diverse practice group. Each one of us, uh, regardless of your perspective, Um, or what subset you come from offers different insights. And I think that historically, just as Jennifer mentioned, for many of the firms, um, all of the compensation issues have been really objective. So it's not the objective criteria that's the challenge. It's everything else surrounding it in terms of the demands that are sometimes placed on women versus others. And I think oftentimes... um, We're just creatures of habit and people forget. Um, You know, we sometimes use the word, the wrong word choice, or fail to think about um, someone who might be having a challenge in another way or in another aspect of their profession or feeling part of the team and of the group. Um, So I think a big aspect really relates to education. Um, And I think it's just now over time, and fortunate for all of us on the call, um, we've had other strong female leaders and other diverse candidates who have come before us, who have helped to pave the way to allow each of us at our respective firms to be at the levels that we're at. Um, But we want more, we want equality. Um, And I think we're moving in the right direction, but it all takes time.
3: Well, it's a great answer. And I want to just pick up on one last thing you said and go around the panel for one last comment. You mentioned role models. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you, again, as uh, prestigious and very prominent women in the legal field, did you have one role model coming up in your life, in your career, a female role model that you think uh, inspired you to get to where you are? It could be family member. It could be a, a prominent female attorney in the world, judge, anything like that. Let's start with Tina. I know you've got many, but uh, can you name one that, that inspired you?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. My mother. Um, My mother was a Mexican immigrant. Um, She passed away when I was 16. Um, But for the short time I had her, she was extraordinarily influential on my life. Um, She suffered discrimination, unlike any I've seen for being um, Mexican. Um, And she taught me a lot of lessons. And she was a wonderful mother. And so she's definitely my number one role model.
3: That's a great answer. Jennifer. Try
2: to, to top that one, my <laughs> boy.
8: It's a tough one, but I'll, I'm going I'm to cheat a little bit and I'll be quick, but I have two. One is my father because he raised me like a boy. And basically, so I don't care if you're a girl, I expect you to do well and succeed in this world. And so I didn't know any different. So I worked like a quote unquote boy. And the second one is the former head of our firm, Jerry Clements, who's a woman. Uh, we are unusual in that we've had two females lead an AMLA 100 firm, which is historic. So again, I thought that was normal. So I just proceed in life as if that's just completely normal because that's what I know. So she was an exceptional role model in teaching me that the, the sky's the limit in terms of your legal career.
3: That's great. Rachel. Uh,
6: so for me, I, I think it's probably a little trite, but I, I'm always a big fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's really the female role model that I aspire to. Sorry. Welcome to working from home.
3: Dog uh, breeze with RBG.
6: Yeah and uh for me it's just inspirational as a litigator and somebody who hopes someday to argue to the Supreme Court watching her ascend to that level has just been amazing. That's great. Lindsay, final uh final shout out.
7: Um I hate I hate to um be uh you know some you know answer with the same question but without question it's my mother. Um I, she at this point in her life and in her career she's probably the busiest she's ever been and I think that Growing up in a home where a mother worked um, really was a, a wonderful way to set an example for me and also for my three brothers in terms of of what we do and what we can do. Um, and I think that played an instrumental role in my life.
3: Great answers. Uh, Lindsay Marcus, Rachel Cohen, Jennifer Kennedy, and of course, WGN superstar, Tina Martini, you are all. Crane's 2020 Notable Women in Law. Congratulations again. Please come back on Legal Face Off in the future and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much for
6: being with us. Thank you. Thank you.
9: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence. Extraordinary client service and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will, and Emery, visit MWE.com.
1: It's time for the Legal Grab Bag, seven topics per usual. Thanks to Ben and Emily and Gabby and everybody for making everything work per usual. For Rich and Tina, my name is Sam. Welcome into the Grab Bag. From WGN-TV, he is Paul Lisnick. You know him Sunday mornings. He does all things politics and he loves a good birthday cake at any
10: time of the year. (laughs) What's up, Paul? Welcome. I, I great. It doesn't have to be a birthday cake. Listen, I'll, I remember the ice cream cake rolls, uh, you know, when I was a kid, so I'm good with that, too. And from Rotary International,
1: he's a risk manager over there. His name's Matt Quigley. Matt, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Thank you for having me. So the way this works, we've got seven topics we're going to banty about. Rich will probably ask a goofy question somewhere in the middle about your favorite so-and-so, but that's how we do it. We've got our first topic, Rich. It's Dersh, our guy, the Dersh, taking on CNN.
3: Frequent guest and friend of Legal Faceoff for many years, Alan Dershowitz is in the news because he is now a plaintiff, as he is on many occasions. Dershowitz is no, you know, not shy about suing people who he thinks has wronged him, which is his his right. In this case, he's suing CNN for three hundred million dollars. He is alleging that they defamed him. Why I thought this case was interesting, uh, my friends, was because uh, they're basically quoting his own words when he testified on the impeachment trial. Literally, he's not alleging, as far as I could tell from reading the lawsuit, that they misquoted him, that they didn't use the exact quote. It's rather unique in that he says they quoted him, but they took him out of context by repeating it. It's really, in my opinion, fairly strange. But the key words in question, again, remember, Dershowitz was one of Trump's attorneys that was testifying before the House and the Senate, during the impeachment trial. And he was advocating on behalf of Trump, saying that what he did obviously did not rise to the level of impeachment. And what he's upset about is he said, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be a quid pro quo that, quid quo quo that results in impeachment. He said that CNN not only quoted those words, but the commentators focused on the last sentence making it seem like he stated it was okay to get reelected with no consequences for, for trading that. So in my mind, a little bit strange. Um, but God bless Dersh for you know being a friend of the show and, and giving us so much to talk about. Tina. What are your thoughts on this one?
2: Well, all I can hope is that Dersh is still a friend of ours after our commentary for the next two minutes on this. Um, I agree with you, Rich. I mean, it, it was a little odd to me, sort of, first of all, the whole $300 million, you know, seeking damages for that is just a little bit off the wall. But I agree with you that and it was a little bit hard to construe. Like when you read what he said, um, the, the uh, transcript, um, first of all, it's a little bit unclear exactly what he's saying, um, and I think that it's, it's a little bit of a stretch, especially when you've got news reporters who are really just, you know, saying exactly what you said. You know, they like to make commentary, too. But at the end of the day, you said what you said. Right, Dersh? So Yeah.
3: Paul, you obviously covered the trial extensively on your show and are a longtime follower of the political scene. What are your thoughts on suing CNN for $300 million for quoting you? back your own words.
10: Well, and I guess another credential is I, I teach constitutional law. So uh, that kind of comes into play here as well, because this, the, the notion of defamation, whatever, is a constitutional law question. Um, he doesn't have a case. And, and the bottom line is, look, he's a public figure. Um, the references to what he said, as you said, he, he said what he said. Um, and, and I think he got perhaps even more backlash than he expected on it. So he did his best to kind of backtrack from what he was saying, but he did talk about the fact that as long as you're doing something in the public interest, I remember that as clear as day, he went on to say, well, but you know, if it's personal, it doesn't count. But everybody's running, uh, who runs for office or wants to be president or wants to be any office is doing it uh, for the purpose of, I suppose, the public interest, they would argue. You know, if, the bottom line is in, the, in an impeachment trial and where the, uh, the allegations were being made, uh, he just, he's a public figure. He doesn't have a leg to stand on. There was nobody doing anything with malice. So, you know, I think he's filing it because he's Alan Dershowitz. He gets a lot of publicity. He attracts a lot of publicity. We're talking about it. But beyond that, uh, I think this goes away.
3: Matt, you deal with uh, lawsuits all the time. You defend lawsuits all the time. You see some fairly high uh, allegations of damages. I bet you've never seen one alleging $300 million for speaking words, right? Now,
11: I've never seen, yeah, $300 million. Um, A lot with, uh, you know, what we're dealing with with media when it comes to stuff like that is like copyright infringement for us. It's more you don't say anything bad about somebody or bad about a a company and stuff We're we have people saying that, hey, you used our image with our permission and stuff. So it's it's a back and forth trying to figure out did we or did we not and stuff and where did we get the uh, source material? So that's Mm -hmm. but (sighs) yeah. Yeah, it's tough because with uh, with him that try to prove this and stuff.
10: Topic two. I just have to say, sometimes when you right. file a lawsuit, you do jurisdictional amounts when you do something like. So, by the way, the actual lawsuit, wherever it's filed, uh, may or may not list the 300 million. That That is kind of a for the press number to see. The reality of it is that if there's a number, it is complaint. It's a jurisdictional amount that just gets into a certain level of court. But the 300 million gets folks like us chatting about it. Tina, I just want to read the title of our next
1: topic. Is Harvard Law Protecting Gun-Slinging Students on (laughs) Zoom? Question mark.
2: Well, I guess you could say that they are, at least um, in, in part. So, you know, only in COVID times would we be even having a conversation about a student that thinks it's appropriate at Harvard Law School to show up to a Zoom meeting for his criminal law class cleaning his gun for 15 minutes in front of the camera. Um, I mean, I just kind of stopped there and was just scratching my head over that one. Um, But I mean, the the quotes are pretty hysterical. So when he was asked about why he shows up to class on Zoom, um, cleaning his gun for 15 minutes, the quote was, Today I was working on cleaning one of my handguns so that I could go shoot vermin in my grandmother's yard after classes. Um, He wasn't quite done cleaning his gun before his criminal procedure class began, so he went in and logged into his class and he kept cleaning. And he says, it seems the armadillos will have to wait until tomorrow. So what I find really interesting is that Harvard Law School is somewhat protecting this guy because they have a new social media policy. It's called the HLS Community Principle on Non-Attribution which means that students are not able to share outside of the class, either through social media or otherwise, what other students say or do. And so it's just kind of ironic, um, the turn of events here, but there's been a lot of discussion, law.com broke this story about whether or not such a policy should exist. And I mean, I, I think that there's a distinction here, that's worth noting. I think you know a- a- anonymity outside of the class. I can understand that. Um, I think anonymity within a class shouldn't be allowed. Um, Rich, I'd love to get your thoughts as well as Matt and Paul. My thoughts are, you know, <laughs>
3: nonsense. cancel culture came to uh, come to campus. I mean, campus life these days—you can't say anything, you can't do anything. Uh, it's 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 a crazy situation, especially in the era of COVID. So. Yeah, shame on them is my thought. Paul, what do you think?
10: Well, there's a couple different things going on here. The gun thing has really nothing to do with what that rule is on campus, I would say. Right. Um, I, I lecture at Harvard every year. If anybody walked in cleaning their gun during the lecture, I, we're done. Uh, so we're, I'm probably not going to let that happen. But, but that being said, here, here's what I think happened. So the class is going on. He's on Zoom, as he said. Hey, I'm just not done finishing my gun. The reason for that you cannot disclose information is because, and I'm sure Matthew and all the lawyers would agree, that people say dumb things when they're in uh, law school, when they're in a law school class. When I was in class, we used to play law school bingo, which is you set a card up with all the stupid people's names all over the card. And whoever talked every class and always said something stupid was the free square in the middle. My point is, with that... I still remember her well. Anyway, uh, the point is, with with those kinds of of situations where you want law students to speak up, to share a thought, even though it may not be intelligent, even though it may not sound right, you want to have that kind of rule to say this is safe territory so you can say what you want as we all learn the law, as we all get brighter and learn how to think like lawyers. It's a whole separate thing from this notion of, and I'm going to clean my gun. When I do the morning show from home, I vacuum my office, but Larry and Robin don't say anything about it. So I guess I'm okay to do that kind of thing.
11: Man. Uh, he probably should not have done it. Uh, but it's kind of like that uh, kid last, last week that was uh, suspended from school because he had a toy gun showing in his background uh, of a video in his own house. Uh, so I, I don't see kind of what the big deal is because he's not bringing it to school. He has it in, an, in his own house or home or wherever he's at. But it's,
1: it's, so, it's topic my... three, Rich, involves your favorite sport, the WWE. Um, I haven't watched wrestling in a while, but I know that uh, sometimes you dabble from time to time.
3: I do. As you know, I wrestle professionally uh, in the Canadian circuit sometime in the late <laughs> 80s. But uh, another lawsuit was dismissed um, on Wednesday of last week, this time by a federal court brought, in this case, by former WWE wrestlers, including some big names of the 80s, Superfly Snuka, Road Warrior, uh, Mr. Wonderful, King Kong Bundy, all names that I grew up watching, um, they all allege, of course, that they developed CTE, something we've seen in a lot of football players. We've seen it in the NHL. Uh, Well, they allege that they got it from their years wrestling for the WWE. The case was dismissed by the court. Um, This was a court in Massachusetts who said that there was – I'm sorry, the, the appeal was in New York. The, the the case was brought for the first time in Massachusetts, but the Court of Appeals had agreed with a federal judge uh, who tossed the two lawsuits saying that they were frivolous or, in some cases, filed after, after the statute of limitations. So we've covered this topic extensively. I remember we talked to a former CFL player about it in Canada um, the key in this case, the interesting elements of this case are a couple of things. Number one, they alleged that their cases were different from other sports like the NFL and like the NHL because wrestling is choreographed and the WWE helped choreograph their sport. And because of that, they had a lot more control than exists in the NHL and the NFL. Um, but ultimately, these cases all revolve around a case that, or a situation that I deal with all the time, which is causation, right? How do you prove that your relatively small amounts of time in the WWE, or more importantly, playing NFL football versus the football you played growing up in college, caused your CTE? That's a really hard standard to prove in the NFL and the NHL. They had a large settlement that would, you know, take that away from the element of proof. But in this case. The court threw it out and felt that it just was not. You, you can improve those elements. So, Tina, do you think the, the wrestlers got uh, body slam in this case?
2: I mean, it's a really tough situation, right? And I'm not really sure in this instance that the fact that they were trying to draw distinctions from like NFL, for example, I'm not sure that that really helped them here. I also think that the statute of limitations issues were pretty significant in this case. I mean, I grew up probably, as you did, Rich, in the 80s, watching these wrestlers. And, I mean, I, I don't really know. And I think your point is very well taken. I think the causation issue here is is huge, especially because of the nature of, of what these wrestlers do. It is all theater and entertainment to a large extent.
3: That being said, Matt, I mean, we've all seen wrestlers get literally hit over the head, we think, With a chair, their head slammed into the turnbuckle, you know, they're they're coming off the top row and hitting each other. They're literally slamming each other in the head till they bleed or maybe not bleed. Maybe they're cutting themselves. But if it got past this point, what do you think a jury would do looking at all the video we've seen for years and years with the allegation that their head injuries were caused by wrestling? They
11: could probably see a causation. It's, it's. I'm always looking at this. Is this a work comp injury or is this something else? Because, I think a lot of these wrestlers are all independent contractors, so they're entering into this ring voluntarily to do this. So, I always to look at this. Yeah, it's. It's. You know, some of the stuff that they did, and some of the some of the injuries were self inflicted too. Seeing like uh, past like 2020. Uh, interviews on wrestling where there was a the guy who literally cut himself and he showed how he did it.
3: All right, so to else. that point. Yeah, to that point. Paul, assumption mm-hmm. of risk, contributory fault are those things that if you were defending the WWE, you would throw out if this case survived and got to trial. <laughs> are,
10: are you saying this wrestling thing isn't real? Oh, come on. Oh, all right, I thought well, I I we thought it was uh no you know what assumption I, I was waiting assumed risk was going to be the point i was going to toss in here and i think that's exactly right the causation issues yes but even aside you know you, you don't take on a profession like this and say wait a minute i i could get hurt uh doing this it, it comes along with the territory it's part of a, of what you're in for so uh yeah i think it just because i wasn't i can't prove that i was uh hurt in in this particular match or that or even in all the you know the training i do for this ahead of time the bottom line it's part of the risk that, that a wrestler would face, and so I, I think the court made the right decision.
1: Well, this next story makes me very upset. It involves Bud Light Lime Limeritas, and unfortunately, they have uh, suggested or claimed that they contain tequila, and I guess some people have felt misled about this.
3: Well, there's a class-action lawsuit against Anheuser-Busch who makes lime Limeritas, which I will say are delicious. What's not to love about every word in that title is just delicious, but. Uh, they've alleged that Limaritas, um don't actually have alcohol. The, the lawsuit says that the, oh. of the packaging where no reasonable consumer would look prior to purchase says in small font, again, this is the lawsuit, that the margarita products are actually malt beverages with natural flavors and caramel colors. So the most important part of that sentence, the Rita, if you believe this lawsuit, is not in there. Um Paul, I know you're a man who enjoys a nice margarita every now and again. What are your thoughts on the merits of this lawsuit?
10: I filed a similar lawsuit against Coke. And um, uh, for all those obvious reasons, that's just a joke. Uh, Look, (laughs) you know, the bottom line is that that the the label, you know, part of the the label's too small. How are they going to read it? They're standing in front of a a wine cooler when they try and sell it to you. You know, the bottom line is when you're buying it, are you, are you being asked for your ID at the checkout line? Uh, is anything happening that would happen are you buying in places where alcohol is not necessarily sold? So the, the surrounding, I understand the, the name. I mean, that's like I said, there, there's other products that will have names that will sort of be enticing. But if there's nothing else, be it the small print or anything in the surrounding sales of it that sort of says there's alcohol involved here. Um, part of that is just the cuteness that comes along with the name. So, you know, and listen, some people could drink it and think there's alcohol in it and get a buzz just from the thought.
3: Okay. And ask the two or three of them who really cares what the label Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think
10: there's something in here. <laughs> you drink
11: I'm enough. Thirst.
1: You drink enough. There's enough. Uh, all right. TMZ is, uh, reporting on Britney Spears. She's back in the news. She said, quote, I've got no desire to perform now. know we know this is not a very easy situation for the Spears family.
2: Yeah, no, this is a story that we've reported on before about Britney Spears and the conservatorship um, of her estate through her father. Um, It's really unfortunate that her father and she have been battling this out for quite a while now. Um, The latest is that her father is trying to rehire Andrew Wallet, who has served as the co-conservator with um, Jamie, who is Britney's dad, For a number of years, from 2008 to 2019, he had served as the co-conservator and had been paid many millions of dollars for his services in that role. Um, Brittany is concerned that her father is trying to essentially inflict this guy upon her again. And where the whole um, notion that she's not really interested in performing anymore comes in is because she's not going to have the revenue coming in that she has had over the past several years. And she's very concerned that she's not going to be able to afford this guy. Um, And in any event, she is actually trying to get a financial institution to step in as um, the conservator of her estate. This whole thing's really sad. I mean, this all goes back to I think it was 2008 when Brittany had her breakdown and when this whole arrangement was put in place in the first instance. Um, She's 38 years old now. Um, we don't see a ton of these um, types of issues very often. I mean, it makes me wonder why can't she handle her own financial affairs, or at least have much more of an active role. But be that as it may, um, this made a lot of headlines over the past couple of weeks.
3: Yeah, it feels like, it feels like a, a legal battle that should have been resolved a long time ago. You would, its It's hard to believe that someone with the resources and You know, background and and experience of Britney Spears would still be mired in a legal battle with her father uh, to decide her own future. We're not talking about a minor here. We're talking about someone who has a track record of some strange behavior, but also, you know, multiple years of success in a very competitive industry. So, Matt, again, you deal with lots of lawyers. Do you think this is just bad lawyering on her part? Do you think we've got a you know, why is this still going on years and years later?
11: I'm I'm kind of shocked that he's getting paid half a million dollars a year to do what is the one question that I, I I'm looking at uh, with regards to um, yeah she should be on her own she's 38 she should be over whatever issues she had but mainly have have a father along just to make sure that she still stays the course but yeah I don't I don't see why you would bring this other gentleman in again.
3: Paul, I know you're one of the most uh, foremost Britney Spears fans from really from the beginning of her career in the pop industry. So you've got no doubt some opinions on on Britney and her legal battles. She's like today's Beatles. Um, Well, I think she's yesterday already.
10: Anyway, here's the thing. By by the way, you know, one of the other things I know I'm known for politics, but over in the Comcast world, I cover Broadway and theater. And there is a uh, show that is been in development. It was supposed to open last April uh, based on her music. So, you know, the fact that she says she's not doing concerts and that kind of thing anymore does not mean she's not in the game. I don't know what the financial situation is, but one would think there's probably some uh, decent money in there for her tied to uh, that Broadway show based on her music. But that being said, conservatorship conservatorships can be challenged. So, you know, if she doesn't want this, whatever, go to court, hire your own lawyers, challenge the conservatorship and let a judge decide. I agree with all of you. I'm not sure what is going on, but we don't know all the facts. So I would suggest to her, if you're not happy, challenge it. All right, sticking with
1: TMZ, my favorite website. Apparently Cardi B and Offset are over. Cardi B has filed for divorce, and I don't know who cares. Tina, do you?
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's just more what she represents, right, and what Cardi B um, and Offset
3: represent. Uh, right? uh, Tina, Tina gets very sad with these celebrity problems. <laughs> I get happy because it gives us... Great stuff to talk about that's, you know, within my wheelhouse of limited, you know, brain power. So you you always say it's sad. I think
2: the well,
0: more, you know, more maybe
2: was, divorces,
3: the better, for Christ's sake.
2: Maybe it was COVID. Maybe they're just dysfunctional. I think it's probably more the latter than the former. I mean, these guys have been on again, off again for years. Um, you know, their allegations that offset, you know, had these sex tapes a couple of years ago. They split up. They had a baby. They get back. Then they got back together. Culture is now two years old. Cute little kid. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's very the culture placid. with a K. By the way, huh? Culture is the name of the right. child. A K, right. not C. Right? As opposed to culture with a C, as in culture club. Um, but you know, it, it's it's just it's sad because you've got kids involved. Um, clearly, there's a lot of immaturity here. We'll see how long this lasts. I mean, these guys have been on again, off again so many times. Um, they may end up getting back together.
3: So Paul Cardi is asking for an equitable division of marital assets, which means presumably no prenup. How do you not get a prenup in this day and age if you're two, uh, you know, very wealthy entertainers?
10: Yeah. All right. In all disclosure, I, I don't, you know, I don't I'm not a fan of Cardi B. I know you don't that. have Cardi B
3: on your rotation. I'm sure. on, no.
10: <laughs> I actually, I thought I was going to get like a Streisand case today or something like that, which, you know, I'm, I'm right in line with. But um, so my thought on this is and by the way, it's a good thing they kept the kid. They would otherwise they would cancel culture and then we would have a, 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 another whole problem.
3: Streisand uh, was covered uh, in legal face of 1979 edition. <laughs> that's what I want to do. <laughs> you can bring me back to the
10: 69. Anyway, that's- look. You are right. The indication is that there's been no prenup between them. Uh, Everything sort of happened very quickly. You know, they they may not be the best in terms of the business sense. That's the problem. But at this point, she's exercising her legal rights. I don't know how successful she is as opposed to her husband, Um, but um, but she's got a right to go for it. And it's a divorce case. And that, you know, uh, one of the things that when I studied entertainment law, I came to learn is that entertainment law is just like any other kind of contract law, except it involves You know, star names like Richard Burton and Elizabeth
3: Taylor. Uh, That's the difference. This is no different divorce case than any other one might be. Sam, favorite Britney song? Favorite Cardi song? Come on, you know I had to go there. Come on.
1: I I, I wouldn't know one from Cardi. Favorite?
3: You got to go hit me, baby, one more time, right? there you go, Matt. What's your favorite Britney song? In the um, or Toxic? Oh, pulling off the Toxic. That's great, (laughs) Tina. Tina, got a favorite one?
2: I, I do not. There's just
3: so many great ones. <laughs> You're just passing on Britney. I mean, you, can't, you can't go wrong, Paul, with uh, Oops, I Did It Again. I mean, that's just a classic. I know
10: that. You know, when, when I was going to do a backstage show with the Britney Spears team, I, I had yeah. to learn her music and I went through her roster, and that was the only one I even knew. So uh, i go with Oops,
3: I Did It Again. I don't win
1: her. All right, let's wrap it up with our final topic Seven of Seven. And Rich, this one involves John Hamm and his private parts.
3: Enough said. You know, Paul, Tina, everyone, mad. it's just another story of John Ham's private parts on Legal face-off. Why did you say my name? we
2: talked about it so much.
3: <laughs> Par for the course. Well, this is one that's actually really in Tina's wheelhouse. Uh, so, Tina, you better, you, this is, we're ending off with the uh, intellectual property uh, question. So the story here is that uh, there was a reporter who, a photographer actually, who took a picture of John Hamm strolling along. And uh, his private parts were blocked out with the words image loading. Um, this was back in 2013. And uh, the photographer who took the photo sued HuffPost, who used the photo, uh, for using it without his license, without his authorization. And a judge in Manhattan said that there was no, said there is legal precedence for publication. There is actual precedence for publication. Using licensed pictures for articles that quote illustrate what the fuss is all about. What all the fuss is about. So I'm not clear if the judge was referring to literally John Hamm's crotch. What the fuss, you know, was about. But uh, a photographer has alleged that this photo has been one of the most widely used f- photographs of John Hamm, and he should be compensated for it. Tina, are pictures of a Mad Men stars' private parts? Protectable?
2: So, you know, I think that the... the um, question you
3: go with all the time in your practice.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm an IP lawyer. Um, I may not be an uber copyright expert, but I think the question is whether this really was a transformative work here. And I just, I, I, I don't see, based on what I know about this, and Paul, I know you know a lot about this area. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. I, I'm not sure I agree with the judge that this was a transformative work rising to the level where this, where this photograph should not have been licensed.
4: Yeah, Paul, the judge
3: said it was transformative because of the newsy worth of newsworthiness of the topic that was being uh, poked fun at. So, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that?
10: Well, you know, look, I'm a John Hamm fan. I watched Mad Men and all that kind of thing. I didn't know that that John Hamm's private parts were were this, you know, focused. I <laughs> never had that information. No, really, and and so I, I mean, to yeah. me, what I'm intrigued by is this notion of the image uploading, which is kind of the creative piece. So, um, uh, so the, the the idea of copyright, which Tina mentions, is exactly what this is about. Copyright implied or. Or actual, um, but to me, and I don't know who added in that image loading kind of thing. I guess it's there for humor and for other purposes. But did the photographer do that? Did somebody else do that to his work? Is it a destruction of his work? I mean, it's the lawyerly answer, but I'd actually need to know more information before I kind of see how we come out on this thing. I only know I wear pants when I'm walking down my neighborhood. That I know.
1: All right. Well, Paul, tell us about the new book too. The last one was "Assume Guilt,"
10: and the new one is called "Assume Treason." So the oh. last one was all about Illinois corrupt politicians. I gave a copy to Pritzker and assured him that it was finished before he took office. And um, <laughs> the next one, Assumed assume Treason. Actually, I had a funny line when I did that. He goes, oh, it's about Lago." Lego, um, so the, which is fiction. Uh, and assume Treason is about, a, 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 gee, an upcoming presidential election where there'll be candidates in there that kind of look like Trump and kind of look like Biden and kind of look like Elizabeth Warren. But it's always a mystery. The the hero is Matt Barlow. He's a jury consultant. That's what's kind of fun about my books. The hero is a jury consultant, which is part of my background. So that'll come out, uh, I think, just before the election. We'll see you on Sunday morning. Yeah, Sunday morning, 9 o'clock. That's
1: Paul Lisnick. Thanks to Matthew Quigley. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you in October right here on
0: Legal Face-Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio. We blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports Hollywood and don't forget.